can come and sit. Yes, good boy. Right, now in response, I'm going to give him a little reward. Okay, so next up, we're going to let you all have a go. That is the sound of a dog being trained. And you may rightfully be asking, why have I got the sound of a dog being trained at the beginning of this podcast? Well, I put it to you. The training a dog and training a person is not that different. Because when you're training a dog, you need to be really clear with what you're trying to achieve. You need to provide incentives. You need to provide repetition. And you need to create a safe environment in which to learn. And this is exactly the same for people. Now, if you're listening to the Talent Equals podcast, I hope you're listening because you're interested in how to improve yourself and those around you. And if that is the case, then this episode will help you do just that. Our guest is Tanya Luna. Tanya is the co-founder of Life Labs Learning, a very successful training business teaching managers from some of the world's fastest growing brands. Tanya joins us just as she's releasing with her co-author, Leanne Renninger, the excellent book, The Leader Lab. Tanya is one of those rare people as much as she's very kind, smart, and super thoughtful on this topic of leadership development. She hosts a really fun podcast with her husband called Talk Psych to Me, where she examines psychology and concepts of psychology and how they apply to our everyday life. Tanya is one to watch out for and certainly one worth checking out further. So I hope you enjoy today's show as much as I did with Tanya. And without further ado, I give you Tanya Luna. Welcome Tanya Luna to the Talent Equals show. It's um, wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I feel welcomed. (laughs) <laughs> fantastic good well let's see how you feel at the end of the show that that's the, the oh, great no. test yeah <laughs> <I'm ominous. laughs> no. um so so tanya you're um the founder one of the founders of um the life uh, labs learning you're a podcast host to talk site to me with your husband um you're a two times author and you've just relate released your latest book the leaders lab so i can see you've been busy um, mm-hmm. And I feel like this is a great time to have you on the show, actually, to really just talk about the the latest book that you've got, but also leadership and talent. So I'm really happy to have you here. Thank so you. before we start that conversation, though, um, I'd like the sort of audience to get to know you a bit, because I've got to be honest, you, you've had a really interesting and colourful life up until this point and the journey that you've taken. So oh, well, I'd like to you. sort of, yeah. And then, of course, we can get into exploring all about the uh, the Leader Lab book and that we've read, which is fantastic. So um I'd like you maybe to sort of ask you to share with the audience how Chernobyl, your mother in a disguise, <laughs> um, being a refugee, psychology and training animals has shaped you and led you to where you are today. How about that? You, know that one, you want that answer in one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. In less than 20 words. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, yeah. So we got a chance to move to the United States which is, you know, one of the most wonderful things in my life as a result of one of the most terrible things that could have happened, which was the Chernobyl accident in Ukraine when I was very young. Fortunately, unfortunately, I got incredibly sick from it for a long time. And that was one of the reasons that we got asylum in the U.S. Um, My mother in disguise, my goodness, you're going into a lot of uh, depth there in my past. So (laughs) I think that's the story I share in a TED Talk I did about my mother actually somehow getting a hold of um, a medical uniform so that she could sneak into the hospital so that she could spend mm. time with me there because I was there for many months and parents weren't allowed to see their kids. And because of the way that the government functioned, they weren't even allowed to give a radio, radio a radiation related diagnosis because the government mm. was basically saying, everything's okay, everything's fine. So there was just a lot of secrecy, a lot of red tape. Um, And how did that shape me? Oh, my gosh. I mean, the fact that my mother was and still is always willing to break rules. The fact Mm -hmm. that I moved to the U.S. as a, you know, pretty young kid has given me this mindset of, you know, questioning what's seen as normal, 
of constantly being suspicious of lots of people agreeing with each other. Uh, and I mean suspicious in kind of a scientific way where I go, hmm, that's interesting. Mm. It's unusual that so many people would be right. So why don't I step back from this and take a little bit more of a curious, um, uh, you know, slightly rebellious mindset to this to really question just because everyone's doing things in this way, just because this is normal, is it actually producing the best result? So in an animal training, I mean, I love animals. I've always <laughs> felt a deep kinship to my non-human. Oh, you just, did you just hear that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I heard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to edit that one out because yeah. it's so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I should clarify. I love animals at every time except for when they're making noise in the background while I'm trying to <laughs> record an interview. Um, I just feel a tremendous, uh, you know, connection, kinship to, you know, our, our non-human family on this mm. earth and training animals is, you know, research shows that it's for most animals, their preferred form of enrichment. They actually really enjoy it as a way to both um, connect and feel energized and excited. And it transfers so nicely over into the world of human training because humans are animals and, you know, I can mm. hang out with my pigs or my goats and, and teach them something and then go, oh my gosh. You know, for example, the other day I was having this aha moment that a lot of intelligence isn't really so much intelligence as motivation. My pigs are incredibly motivated to get food. And mm. so they learn incredibly fast. And I was just thinking, oh, for humans, you know, maybe in some cases we should be focusing less on what we teach and how we teach it and more about creating that intrinsic motivation to learn. And that'll impact speed of learning retention. So I can go on and on about it. I learn about animals. Uh, animal training through human training and vice versa all the time. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I really felt that in sort of listening to your work, listening to your podcast and, um, and your, your love for animals and this idea of motivation was so, so central to uncovering like what is, what gets us to learn and the engagement of people, right? Engagement mm -hmm. of, um, people within the, the professional context. And I think you made yeah. some very uh, interesting observations about that. And I'd certainly like to, to come to that um, through the course of our conversation. Um, but maybe just quickly tell us, you know, Life Labs Learning, this is your, the business that you, you founded, right? And uh, this is a co-founded, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe you could just tell me just a, just a quick short snippet about that, because I think it's also helpful for the audience to understand like where this work that you've created with the book came from, right? And yeah, absolutely. Well, so first hats off, I'm not wearing a hat, but let's, it's a podcast. So, you know, let's, yeah. pretend. let's take one off. Yeah. <laughs> so my hat off to Leanne Renninger, who uh, was really the one that had the original idea for this business. And the way it started out was life's most useful skills, the skills that as adults, we don't get access to that really are so essential to being able to live a meaningful life to be able to have really successful relationships, whether at work or in life. And the way she and our other co-founder, Dirk Liedig, the way that they started off the business was really B2C. So they wanted to have these sessions, these workshops and life's most useful skills accessible to anyone. And then when I joined is when Leanne and I, we actually met by both being one of the few weirdos that study the psychology of surprise. And we got introduced because it's sort of an unusual area of research. And we co-created a workshop together on the, on the psychology of surprise. We called it surpriseology. That's actually the, the focus of our first book together that we co-wrote. And it was booked by Whole Foods. And so that kind of blew our minds a little bit because we realized that the work that she was doing and the work that I had been doing, which was organizational, organizational consulting based on principles and organizational psychology, could be melded in this really beautiful way where we bring life's most useful skills into the workplace by taking advantage of the fact that we spend so much time at work that we can turn mm -hmm. the workplace into this practice lab to master those skills. And so now what we do, you know, I, I started back in 2014, we had about 10 clients. Now we have over a thousand companies that we train all over the world. We do manager training, team training, leadership development, and we really focus on what we call tipping point skills. So Yes, there are infinite skills to learn, but nobody has time for that. So we focus on just the smallest changes that tip over into the largest array of outcomes. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. And I, I hear that like in reading through the book, there was certainly a focus on 
trying to be as effective as possible. And it was it was actually interesting the way I came to know you um, through another previous guest, Thomas Weddell-Weddlesborg, who wrote a couple of fantastic books. And, you know, he certainly said about you that he thought about your work was very practical mm-hmm. and it was very, you know, um, applicable to the scenarios in which you would sort of encounter, which I think is good praise from him, certainly. And I, I read through it as well, really liking the format of the listening to the interview, reading the interview of the, um, the you know, potential manager and how they would deal day to day. So I could certainly feel that coming through. And there was a couple of key things, but I think that kind of leads me nicely to one of the questions I have for you, which is really about learning to be a leader. Mm. Um, and I, I suppose, first of all, let's kind of get comfortable with swapping leader and manager, mm. you know, kind of one and the two, same, the same thing, right? And I think it's fair to say that in our culture, the wider culture, there is this thought that you're kind of born a leader. You know, you're mm-hmm. the alpha, you're the person who knows how to marshal the troops and get them mar- marching in a direction. Yeah. So it's kind of a quality you have or you don't. But so, I'm, so my question though comes back to like, can anyone actually be a leader? And if mm-hmm. so, like, if anyone can learn to be a leader, like, how much time should we be dedicating to it? So Two part oh question. Oh my goodness, you. you're really good with these compound questions that you're testing my memory. Yeah, I know. Yeah. All there right, I, uh, I'll tackle those one one at a time. Um, first, I just want to pick up on something you said casually, but I think is actually not a widely accepted fact, and something I'm really passionate about, which is this idea that managers are leaders. And it, you know, historically, it was believed that a leader kind of leads into uncertainty, whereas a manager manages the known. We're not seeing that anymore in the majority of the companies that we work with. Actually, I would say in all companies that we work with, I would even go so far as to say managers are not managing people. Very often there's this kind of, um, I think, harmful belief that as a manager, I'm supposed to control the people on my team. Mm. People are truly best at doing great work, at supporting each other, at bringing their, you know, kind of their um, desire to go beyond just what's expected of them if they feel supported, if they feel invested in, if they feel uh, that someone is creating clarity for them, not if they feel controlled. It's very rare that you talk to someone and they're like, I just wish I could be micromanaged. Uh, I have heard it once or twice, just when people are like, ah, there's so much uncertainty. I just want someone to tell me what to do. But Mm. even then, for the most part, you know, when you talk to people, uh, who have had bad managers, which is unfortunately a lot of people, they describe it as soul sucking. They describe it as energy draining. And that's not what we want, whether you're thinking about it through just a human centric perspective or from a workplace productivity perspective, someone's soul being sucked is not going to achieve great business results. So I think it's really important to just step back and recognize that as managers, even if that is your title, ideally you're thinking about things like managing time, managing resources, you know, maybe managing um, priorities. You're not managing people. Instead, really, ideally, you're thinking more about catalyzing, you know, connection, creativity, engagement, motivation, focus, things like that. Um, And that's where I think kind of merging this idea of manager and leader is important because as a leader, you can think of yourself as, you know, bringing people to this better place, helping people get to a place that they want to go through your, mm. through your support, through your care uh, versus manage, which is a synonym for control. Um, you're sort of dragging people <laughs> to that place that you want to go, not to the place that they want to go. So I know I just said a lot. I know you had two other pieces of the question there that I'd love to respond to, but let me know if you want me to clarify. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, it's a great observation and a great, you know, sort of, um, clarifying point because I, I see it myself. You know, I think that ultimately throughout organizations, you know, I had one of my previous guests as a CEO of a you know, major division of a big financial institution. He said, you know, really once you get past maybe seven or eight people in your team, like layers, like direct ports, you start losing any type of ability to actually cause effect. You rely on other people to do the things for you. And so we should be relying on empowering our managers in organizations to lead. And this is what we get to. I think the book is great at doing, and we certainly as a question is like, what is leadership, right? Um, And what does it mean to be a great leader? Um, And there are many ways to do that, but certainly what I've heard through the course of the book and through some of the course of the things you've just mentioned is really getting at 
the intrinsic motivators of the individual, what lights up that person to mm. go and do and go beyond. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly I found that motivation in how I define talent and how we've defined talent here at Exige and, and through the course of the podcast is that, you know, talent is, is ability plus motivated relevant experience. And the motivated component for me is a really important aspect because it's what, what keeps the fire burning when it's raining and it, and, and it always rains in business. There's always stuff coming at you that you don't want and you don't expect. It's difficult stuff in your life. So I can see how really getting at the intrinsic motivations and that certainly is what you talked about with your training of the animals, but also, yeah. you know, well, and it's not like, ourselves, right? I think it's really important to also remember that we can't actually motivate someone. I can't make you motivated, but I can create conditions by asking you questions, by working with you, mm -hmm. by understanding what your needs and your interests are to create an environment that motivates you. But I, as a person, can't like shove motivation into your into your brain. Um, and I love your definition of, of talent, of ability plus motivation to answer the other question that you had asked. Can leadership be be taught? Absolutely. Yes, we do see that even from a very early age, I used to study child development back long ago. Um, and, you know, you see certain qualities that we associate with leadership very, very early on. However, what we find is that it doesn't really matter what your kind of natural predisposition is if you're not willing to put in the effort to develop the skills and if the motivation isn't there. Uh, so just like if someone, you know, maybe has a natural aptitude for dancing, but they don't put in the effort to train and the motivation isn't there for them to perform, that natural aptitude is going to, you know, account for very little. Um, what I can say is that we have seen at this point, hundreds of thousands of, of leaders get better through treating leadership as a practice rather than treating it as this kind of magical quality that you're born with, which doesn't really help anyone. Just one other thing, just if I can get back on my soapbox for a moment, it's wonderful. I think also this leadership skill set that we're talking about, it's absolutely essential for managers, uh, for executives, but also I think the way that the world of work is evolving, it's essential for everyone. That's something we're so passionate about at Life Labs is kind of democratizing access to these skills because we're moving too quickly for there to just be a handful of leaders, you know, making decisions on behalf of everyone else. Really what we're seeing in practice, like at, at my company, Life Labs Learning, we're about 150 employees now. Yes, we have some people with relatively formal leadership authority, but we're constantly seeing that leaders emerge, that groups, you know, form and then disband as their purpose is achieved. Uh, you know, leadership is constantly revolving and distributed and we're able to work so quickly and so collaboratively because we're not waiting for this one, you know, grand leader to be the decision maker and the driver of all progress. So you're talking about your own experience there inside your own organization, right? In terms of these emerging Yeah, and even leaders. when we look at, you know, organizations that we study, increasingly, mm -hmm companies are distributing leadership and expecting more and more people to take on formal and informal mm. versions of leadership. So I think these skills, they're like kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like table stakes for managers, but they're increasingly mm. important for all people, regardless of what their roles are. We're all going to have to take turns leading, following. Yeah. I, I think you made an interesting point, which I know connected when connected to the to the topic that's covered in the work here that you were talking with your, your husband um, on one of your shows where mm -hmm. it was this idea of extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. And there was an interesting point made around, um, you know, as we work in organizations, um, we are given this extrinsic motivator of money mm. and money becomes a really poor tool in affecting motivation specifically and particularly when we get into environments where there's creative work, quality work, where we're, you know, in organizations where, you know, we've really met our baseline needs in life. We have, you know, the, the house and the car and the bills being paid. Yeah. After that, the effectiveness of making you happy and making you motivated money is really difficult. It's not, I say it's inefficient, shall we say, at doing that. Um, and so that, maybe that's also why we, we have this movement towards, you know, greater sense of meaning and purpose in our work, but also tapping into that. And, and I could only say that, you know, from Exige, it's very interesting reading the the camps model that you had, which is you identified some motivators and engagement components, which were certainty, autonomy, meaning, progress, and social inclusion. Yeah. And it made me smile because 
had Exige, we did some research in my headhunting work to find out why candidates were leaving their jobs. And we identified five motivational factors, which are power, impact, learning, work-life balance, and teamwork. Oh, and yeah. they sort so of- it, Well, exa- exactly. And I'd sort of, we'd come at this entirely independently and mm-hmm. to see that people were constantly telling us they were frustrated, they didn't have enough power to get stuff done. They weren't having any impact, or, mm-hmm. as you'd say, sort of meaning in their work. The learning wasn't happening, so there was just, just no sense of progress in their life. Yeah. Um, work-life balance maybe doesn't quite map as clearly to. Yeah. I would say under certainty, you know, that's something that yeah, to quite a bit where people say like, how you know, mm. how much will I be expected to work? What does success look like? When is mm. enough enough? You know, things like that, and then power, yeah, yeah. autonomy. Oh my goodness, look at this convergent. I, I know absolutely, and then the final one is teamwork, and you, you talked about it as social inclusion, and yeah. you know, we focused it, you know, and we've obviously seen through that that there's certain psychological profiles that have a predisposition to these elements, right? You know, and we could end up talking about MP, you know, MPQs and various other psychological profiles, mm-hmm. and I think that maybe that neatly leads me on actually to the next question I had for you that was sat with me that upon reading the book, it was really the importance of being a great psychological manager seems to be really what is so important. So yeah, I wonder how, how important psychology is in the art of management to you. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's essential. You know, if you, I'm just looking behind you and you have a a lovely plant behind you that I'm going to assume is real. (laughs) It is real. Absolutely. That's why it's leaning towards the light. Yes. There you go. So just by being able to explain to me that the the plant is leaning toward the light, that shows to me that you've taken the time to understand a little bit about how this plant works. What does it need to thrive? When it starts looking wilted, what does it need to, you know, to be revived? Uh, I'm really just guessing here because I'm actually horrible with plants, but me too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that plant (laughs) looks like it's thriving. So if your goal is to help your plant be successful, you're going to take the time to understand what does your plant need to thrive. And in the same exact way with human beings, if my job as a manager is to help someone achieve greater results than they could without me, which is the whole point, if you're not helping someone get to, you know, them times some exponential factor then you're not really fulfilling the purpose of your role. So if my job is to help bring out the absolute best in you, better than you could do on your own, of course I need to understand what motivates you, what impedes you, what makes your your human leaves wilt, <laughs> what's the sun that you are <laughs> kind of pulling toward. Um, and you know, in the workplace, that's that's understanding the psychology of you know my my coworkers or the people of my team. But this isn't like a widely accepted, you know practice I always feel like I, I get it that it's it seems so obvious when we talk about it but when I certainly introduced the the these motivational systems we created people are like wow this is really incredible like you know people are motivated by the same things I'm like yeah hey who would have thought right you know we yeah. all want to have some empower and impact and learning work-life balance and teamwork and um but it how surprised are you to see that do, do organizations still go like wow that's like you know surprising things or <laughs> No, How do you I, feel? Because I think also talking about, we're talking about also underlying deep things for people. And sometimes people feel uncomfortable drawing that out of colleagues and mm-hmm. well, I don't know what you think. You disagree yeah, yeah. with anything I say. No, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think we've at Life Labs Learning, we've had the very good fortune of getting a chance to work with companies that are very, I think they would describe themselves as people centric. They're trying to create great workplaces in part, it's because a lot of them are in tech. And so there's tremendous mm. scarcity of talent. And so there's, they're going, come work here. This is going to be the best <laughs> experience ever. And so in part through just genuine commitment to creating a very mm. human work environment, and in part because of scarcity of talent, you know, we have been fortunate to work with, I would say most companies that we work with do care about the human psychology. That said, I don't think that that's the case everywhere. Uh, and in, in all industries and in all geographies. And I think a lot of that is that as organizations, you know, we're carrying a lot of baggage from even the industrial revolution era of, you know, humans are there to create, there's sort of a, a segment of a machine uh, to create efficiency, right? I don't really, you know, need to understand how to um, get you to think creatively if I just want you to 
you know, add a part or assemble a part or add it to a conveyor belt. I would argue that even then it still pays to, you know, to give people that, um, that human dignity to understand, Hey, what are you motivated by? What are you, what are you interested in? That kind of thing. But, but if you don't have scarcity of human talent, uh, if, you know, if, if people are, if people are available to you to hire in abundance, uh, and if you don't really need people to do work that requires collaboration, creativity, you know, complex problem solving, then sure, you know, you can treat humans kind of like machines. But if your purpose is to get the humans that you work with to do these things that machines can't yet do, uh, you have to think about things like what mood are they in? And do they feel respected? And do they feel connected? And, And that kind of thing. And and again, that's just good business from a productivity and performance perspective. And it also makes for a world where people are more fulfilled and more connected and more joyful. And again, we spend so much of our time at work. This is a way to build a, a better human society as well. I certainly, I think one of the things that's running through my head when I hear all of that is, my God, that's a lot of work for a person, right? To, to like, and, and maybe this is part of the problem is that people are given managerial roles, go manage this team of five people, but Hey, you've also got to do your day job as well. Yeah. And so they're like, well, okay, great. How the hell am I going to do that? Because <laughs> this is a lot of time. This is a lot of time commitment. It's a big role to try and yeah. understand and be an effective manager and a coach and leader. So, um, well, that's an observation for me, but I, I suppose my question also intrinsically within that is, you know, how much time should we be dedicating as leaders to this role? If you have an answer to that, I'm, you know, I I'd be intrigued to see that. Yeah, um, I love that question. I mean, I would first argue that the time you would waste cleaning up the consequences of poor management, the time and cost in actual dollars is much higher. I mean, you know this, given your industry, it's very expensive to hire people and then rehire them and then hire new people that, you know, to replace the people that left. It's very expensive to spend time in conflict in poor quality meetings, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's very expensive to get surgery if you're incredibly unhealthy. <laughs> it takes more um, short bursts of time to stay healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you have to spend a whole bunch of time and money cleaning up, you know, the consequences of not of not developing that practice and that diligence. So I actually think great management is a way to save time by being really diligent about putting in just a little bit of time every single week. And in terms of hours, I mean, we've tracked this within our own organizations and through our interviews with managers and organizations. And really great managers are spending about two hours a week with their direct reports or with their team per person. You know, Mm -hmm. if there are situations where there's an emergency or something like that. Certainly, it could it could blossom if someone is um, relatively new to the organization or to their role. That could take a little bit more time, but truly, it could become incredibly efficient if what matters isn't the amount of time, but how you use that time. And that's really what we focus on in the Leader Lab book: is how do you become incredibly efficient in having that positive impact on your team? I, uh, I love that. One of the things I'll always tell people: you know, if you're if you haven't got time to do great recruitment, you better get, you're going to have a lot of time dealing with, with bad situations. Yeah. So, you know, it's like a, it's an idea is it's a compounding effect. If you get it right, isn't it? You get it right. Yeah. Like you invest those, those, those micro lots, those 20, 30 minutes all the time with people. Yeah, exactly. It's a compounding effect over time. And we're not um, great at that as humans. You know, we, we, I think are very drawn toward, you know, the big outcomes or the big pro the big urgent problems. But I think a lot about the aviation industry, you know, there so much of what makes air travel safe these days is the checklist. It's taking the time to go, <clears throat> even though I've flown, you know, hundreds or thousands of times, we're still going to pause and we're going to go through the checklist before we take off. Does that take time? Yes. Is it worth the time to not crash later? Absolutely. And the more you do it, the more efficient and lean that can be. Yeah. Checklists and repetitive tasks. Yes, it's very difficult for humans to do that effectively over time um, without the right motivators. And that's what maybe how it's difficult also for managers to see the motivation to do the thing if, you know, you're you're constantly doing little actions which build into big actions. So that's a 
it's an interesting observation. Well, and, and kind of going back to your question of, you know, can anyone be a leader? Can anyone be a, a great manager? Uh, again, I, I think yes, given the training and given, given um, you know, the right kind of ecosystem. But I don't think everyone should be. Uh, and so if you're looking at this, you know, responsibility, opportunity to be that person who brings out the best in others through understanding their needs and listening to their feelings and all that kind of stuff. If you're like, oh, that just sounds miserable. Don't do it. That's totally okay. In fact, we do a lot of advising for the companies that we train to say, make sure management isn't the only path toward career growth in your organization. Um, That's something we're, we're constantly looking at within Life Labs Learning, within our own company, just asking ourselves, are we forcing people down a path of people leadership uh, as the only path to growth? Or are we creating Mm. equally lucrative, equally fulfilling, equally prestigious paths that don't require taking on that responsibility? Because there are going to be some people that look at that job description and go, that's for me. I want to be that someone for someone that understands them, then brings out their best. And then there are going to be people that look at it and go, well, that's exhausting. I don't want to do it. And ideally, organizations are not pushing people toward that category Mm. of management if it's not the right fit i can feel like both of those types of people all at the same time oh my god yes i want to lead oh no i've taken on another responsibility oh no what do i do with that can i can i ask you then what's one of those examples of a role where you wouldn't need to be going into leadership and that could be an equally you know prestigious profitable role to take do you have an example of that yeah, I think so. For example, on on our team, uh, we have uh, a path you can take where we, we actually don't have we don't use the term manager at Life Labs. We use the term role sponsor, uh, just because of my aversion to the idea of manage. Um, and again, because our, our role sponsors on our team don't actually manage um, like resources or budget or anything like that. They're like pure people, coaches, develop. They do like development, assessment, that kind of thing. Um, so we have the role sponsor path, and then we have what we call the lead path. And so you might go down that direction if you really wanted to build expertise in something. Um, and so uh, we had um, we have someone on our team, for example, whose expertise is in um, advising our clients in how to create the right ecosystems so that the skill training that we do through our workshops is as sticky as possible. She doesn't need to focus on developing and supporting specific people, she's focusing on building knowledge and subject matter expertise that's creating equal but very different type of value for the organization. There's going to be something I'm going to come back to here, which I'd like to talk a bit about is like the whole male-female um, diversity component as well within leadership. Mm-hmm. And it might be an interesting thing for us to explore because I just see you have quite a, a large female leadership team in your organization <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah, which is cool, are. which is great to see, right? But um, it's, a, it's we try really though. hard to be a, a tr- attractive to you know non-female um, folks as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's part partially our industry too. You know, the the sort of psychology and um, uh, people development space. Um, there quite well, a maybe, lot of folks maybe let, <laughs> Well, maybe let's go there straight away, Tanya. Let's like ask yeah. the question: like, is with a new breed of female leaders coming through, that is clear for me to see in my work as a headhunter, we're placing far more women, like outstanding women from a whole range of industries and in non-typical industries like finance and through to engineering and tech. Do you think that um, women approach this journey of being a leader in a different way and the sort of stylistic approach that they have? Um, or is it sort of just, you know, that the characteristics are the same and the way they approach it, just the same as men? I'd just like to get your, yeah. your thoughts on that. I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on this topic, actually, despite <laughs> being a woman. I don't know. <laughs> you know I, uh, there are plenty of times I'm, I work with other women and I go, oh, well, our styles are totally different. And then there are yeah. times that I'm around men and, and go, well, oh, I, OK, I could see a difference in maybe how we were socialized. Um, I can give you kind of a crude answer, but this definitely isn't my area of expertise. Um, I think my crude answer is that you know, in most cultures, men are more likely to be socialized toward competition and women are more likely to be socialized toward collaboration. And at least in our work, we found that uh, collaboration, this attentiveness to emotion, attentiveness toward care and support, um, it's not, I don't believe that it, that women are naturally better at it maybe there's some kind of chemical thing going on but uh 
I do believe that society creates barriers to entry for male leaders um, because of kind of shame and pressure that's that's placed on boys from a very early age to not show their emotions, to not show vulnerability, to, you know, to be tough and to be strong. And, and unfortunately, that ends up being really harmful in most workplaces. Um, but again, very, very crude. <clears throat> Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think it's some um, much of the research is on the binary of male to female the even that is so restrictive. So I, I struggle with, you know, kind of yeah. having confident perspectives on the gender question. I don't think it was a crude answer. I'm going to give you that, <laughs> Mark, as far, by the way, I think I, I, um, well, usually I, observe... I only answer if I have a lot of research to back it up. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, well, good, good point. But we, sometimes we, you know, we can, I think to say there isn't a difference between the sexes would, would be would be ridiculous. You only have to look at death row, right, to see the amount of men that are on death row versus the amount of women. And uh, so I, I accept that there is a definitely a gender difference and approach to to life, and and there's a hormone difference. There's a whole range of you know physiological differences. Um, so once we accept that, I mean, it's quite maybe a bit easier to accept that there may be a different approach. And I think what I've certainly observed is that now I'm seeing that the women who are coming through in management are able to be like themselves in their style of being a woman in leadership mm. because before it seemed to be templating a male style of leadership like it was the the de facto example for everyone that's how you be a leader you be like yeah. john from from finance or malcolm from you know technology oh, yeah. or whatever Still, it be. if you google yeah. the word leader there's an yeah. archetype that tends to populate of the course screen, for absolutely sure. and i i hear it said of my friends oh yeah you know that guy's a real alpha you know um but when you meet women leaders they tend to be you know, much more collaborative, and I, I will use you know a, a sort of generalizations here, but and there'll be there'll be a certain softness to it. There'll be a more you know emotional readiness as well. I find on the whole, because again, you know, women are tend to be much more emotionally ready and available, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, but I have seen the impact of that often, and I've had it when I've placed senior candidates. Is sometimes you get feedback as they come through the interview process, they don't have enough gravitas. Don't have you like you know they then are they senior enough, um, and you know I have to try and unpick those with people, but mm-hmm. that's why I'm fascinated by the work that you Yeah, yeah, you know I'm like in a way. Okay, let, let, exactly, exactly. This that is a great, great link, and I, I think this is a really important thing for us to acknowledge that there are a set of skills that can be learned and applied. You know, and I'm I actually love working with female leaders for that reason. So I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big advocate. Um, so. That actually is maybe a a point for us to sort of pivot now, unless you have a point to talk about. But I um I yeah, well I, I would also maybe just you know I made I made the quick point there about kind of you know the male female binary. Increasingly, we're also you know seeing that there's space in the workplace, and companies are trying to create space in the workplace for people who are gender fluid or non-binary mm-hmm. trans employees. Like I think that the point you're bringing up is so important because when we bring these templates of what a great leader looks like, what gravitas looks like, what credibility looks like into the workplace without questioning it. And it doesn't have to be an aggressive questioning. It could just be like a, Hey, what do I mean by gravitas? Mm -hmm. What led me to believe that this person wasn't, didn't have conviction. What led me to believe that this person wasn't confident, whatever it is that that, whatever that subjective kind of um, feeling is that we're having, you might be totally right. But it is so important to say, hey, our brains have been fed this one particular image, and that's a disadvantage to everyone, including men who arguably have been advantaged by it in the past. But now it's a disadvantage to everyone to look at people through that template. And But it's impossible not to. It's not like you can just turn it off. You know, it's, it's what we grew up seeing and being exposed to and continuing to be exposed to. So I do think that point you're making is so important for everyone, regardless of what their identity is, if in that recruiting process, in that interview process, wherever you are, uh, where you're about to make a judgment about someone, having this this um, skill that we talk about in the book of de-blurring is so small, but so impactful. And you talked before about, oh my gosh, it takes time and effort to, to be a great leader. Um, well, actually, this is one of those really small tools that if you just get diligent about using can have massive impact on your team, on your organization, on our whole society to just say, hey, can you tell me more about what led you to believe that that person didn't have, you know, enough presence, executive presence? What does executive presence mean to you? Um, So I think that's, it's one of these forms of like, uh, very efficient social activism, and leads to better results in the workplace. Yes, 
Yes, I am. And um, I think actually, I'm, I'm a, and I'll tell a slight, small anecdote. On, on my school book, um, by my, uh, you know, when you get at the end of your school, your, your teacher writes like the phrase that they most knew you by. Um, and mine, mine was, yes, but why? <laughs> And, oh and, God, and, I, and, I, and I and I know, right? So, so how annoying I must have been as a kid <laughs> in school. Um, uh, I didn't know I was you all... saying it once this, throughout this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've grown, you've changed, but tell me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the point for me is that it's actually, you know, challenging the status quo, trying to understand why things are being said, what they mean, why they are meaningful, you know, mm-hmm. why they're right, why are they accepted is really important. And it, it's it happens like you know for me again i'm i'm challenging the sense like we can bring the male and the female to work i can be both you know i've had from my own personal experience i've had to be the father mother much more than mother father recently mm. because my wife was injured and i had to take over the duties of um the household in a way that yeah. my wife had taken over and actually that was wonderful for me it let me open up into a part of me that i hadn't been spending as much time on um and so that's mm. that type of fluid nature that i think while we get more diverse people into the workplace, it allows people to be like, I can, I can be that person yeah. I've always wanted to be, right? Oh my goodness, um, yeah. I mean, you mm. talked before about, you know, is it that people are being more themselves? And I think that's the ultimate dream is, you know, we kind of release this idea of there's a way to be and create an opportunity for people to not have to live up to this you know, whatever that, that stereotype or, or archetype is and discover the, the weird and wonderful quirky being that you are, because it also allows you to be really flexible and adaptive. I think none of us these days can afford to just be one thing anymore. In one way or another, we all have to be very good at staying fluid. So I think the more space there is for that inherent diversity that each of us holds to be reinforced and welcome in the workplace, the more likely as an organization, just like a species, the more diversity in a species, the more likely we are to, you know, not go extinct when there's a certain event that happens. Same thing in the workplace. The more diversity we allow within the team and within ourselves, the more likely we are to stay agile and adaptive no matter what happens. And I think the idea of holding a space, the, the, the company, the modern company becomes effective an opportunity for leadership, the principles of that company to hold open a space where, you know, the, the people who come to work in that can feel like, they're really fulfilled. They have. They can be authentic. They can go on to do meaningful work. That's also getting at a core problem of this agent principle problem that's pre- present in sort of microeconomics, where you know you have the leader of an organization are intrinsically differently motivated to the yeah. to the, the workers in the organization. And so, how do you overcome that, particularly in environments like you've mentioned in tech, where there's such a proliferation of opportunity and you can move around freely, is to create the very best opportunity you can for those workers yeah. to be within the ecosystem. So I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that and I'm loving to hear this because this is like the, the most beautiful way to do that, to solve that gnarly problem, that agent principle problem, um, which I'd encourage listeners, I'll put a link in the show to, to find out more about. And I think Naval Ravikant talk very, to, talk, spoke very eloquently about this problem. Um, but let me, let me pivot for a moment with you to something that I felt was really central to the work that you were talking about and you've just highlighted, which is clarity. Um, I'm a novice but very interested um stoic practitioner and one of the key things that the stoics always talk about is perception this ability to see things clearly have a clear ability to see the truth of a thing uh, and the truth of a situation and i it really struck me through the course of the book that you were talking a lot of that it was one of the key skills and you mentioned one of them which was debler but there was also playback there was cue step questioning and mm-hmm. and for me that was constantly driving at this need to get clarity. So maybe just talk at that a bit more about why is clarity so important in being a manager or a leader? Mm, oh my goodness, I love that. Um, yes, and and that maybe this is like anti-Stoic to say, um, <laughs> but I will say it's it's not that I believe in an objective reality uh, or, or, you know, one truth with a capital T. It's that for humans to work effectively together, they need to agree on a shared truth. They need to agree on a shared reality. And what we see in the workplace is just constant loss of resources, you know, time, emotion due to miscommunication. And, you know, we talked about some of the benefits of diversity. 
one of the downsides of not working with someone that you have complete similarity with is that we're going to misunderstand each other. You know, whether that's because we come from different cultures and or different, you know, we're speaking different languages, that can absolutely be the case as well. But a lot of times it's just, I see things from one vantage point, you see things from another vantage point. We have to put in that extra bit of effort. And again, it's effort up front, but way less effort later on in cleaning <laughs> up the mess to just make sure that we're, we are actually talking about the same thing, that we're speaking the same, uh, the, I was going to say we're speaking the same language, but even if we're speaking different languages, that we're using those words to define the same thing. And that you know, trickles into things like delegation, to feedback, to goal setting, to um, having conversations about people's growth and development. I love that you picked up on the clarity piece because again and again and again, that's what we saw is that great leaders are willing to put in that extra little bit of effort to make sure there's a co-created shared reality. Very true. And I I mean, I, I identify with this because it's one of the key pillars of my work as a headhunter um, in my day job is that we seek, we spend an inordinate amount of time with the leaders that we work with to understand exactly what they want and exactly yeah. what they want in the person they're trying to hire. Because without yeah. that clarity, without deblurring a lot of the things like gravitas, you know, and, um, you know, flexibility yeah. and, you know, hardworking and all of these things, these sort of, these words that we throw out, which can mean so much, such different things, even across, across culture, it, it becomes like the key to future success. So, yeah, clarity for me. And I, I was glad to hear you focusing on that a lot throughout the the course of the book. And and, and certainly yeah. I use it in my my interview methodology all the time. Um, There's, a, I think, a, a quote attributed to Shakespeare, although I'm not even sure if Shakespeare said it, but uh, expectation is the root of all suffering. So <laughs> I think, yeah, in, in your work and in our work as well, it's if we don't have alignment around expectations, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Yeah, it's very true. And, and um you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? Like you, you talked about, you know, having a, a shared truth and defining what that shared truth is. Well, that, that you're right. That's, um, that's what it seems like in this world as the art, the art of organizations, and the art of good life to so many ways is those who can see most clearly through to that truth, whether or not they have it shared or not. Right. So this yeah. is why this, gaining this clarity in the, so as the Stoics would teach that, you know, you, you'd understand what, what goes through to the natural order of things and um, perception and, 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 and then having the action, the courage to take action and, you bring me yeah. back to like yeah. my little Marcus Aurelius booklet that I got <laughs> from, my, from my philosophy teacher in high school. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's up there on the on the on the, <laughs> on the ones I gift all the time. So right. yeah, yeah, it's probably why that and Epictetus. Yeah, so um, I um, I, so great, and I think um, I want to so clarity is like really at the core of it, and that feeds into feedback actually, and. Um, I loved reading a bit about your feedback. That again was a couple of steps, and I had a wonderful guest, Sheila Heen, who you actually quoted on mm -hmm. on the uh, in the book as well. Yeah. And I love Sheila and Doug's work. Um, great human beings, yeah, but fantastic. also fantastic work. Um, and and you quoted this idea of like their second score method, which is this principle that we have to take responsibility for our outcomes, right? That mm -hmm. the, and and Sheila talks to me about that. This idea that. They said thanks for the feedback, the art of receiving feedback well, right? Yeah. Because she really had that focus on her and Doug said, let's focus on receiving. Because the only thing we really ultimately got to have control over and where the real value is created in feedback. Yeah. So you dedicated two chapters to feedback and coaching. So I sort of understand really the the importance of feedback, but also this this concept of us having responsibility to take it on. I mean, it, I think among all the companies we work with, feedback skills and creating a feedback culture within the organization is among their top priorities, and particularly among these fast-growing, fast-changing organizations. The reason for that is that feedback is the ultimate calibration mechanism. You know, mm. if I was doing work that I knew precisely how to do and I knew exactly how it impacted others at all times, we would never have to give each other feedback and everything would be fine. Of course, that's not the reality we work in. We work in a reality where goals are constantly changing. People are constantly changing. Tasks are constantly changing. The required skills are constantly changing. How else could we, in this kind of ecosystem, continuously learn and adapt without getting that feedback from one another? I mean, feedback is very simply, you know, if I walk into a wall, I'm going to get feedback that I shouldn't keep walking. 
in the same way, when we work with other humans, we rely on one another to help us understand the impact of our actions. And people make a really big deal out of this. It feels very scary because you're like, oh no, I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'm going to, you know, potentially harm our relationship. But I think the organizations that do this well really do a nice job. And the managers and the teams that do this well do, do a nice job of framing feedback as this opportunity to all grow and learn from one another. It's like if I had I don't know what your version of this is. The American expression is if I have spinach in my teeth, <laughs> I want someone to tell me. I don't know why Americans apparently always have spinach in their teeth, even though no one <laughs> eats vegetables. Uh, <laughs> like a good friend. Let's go with that. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <Let's> go. <laughs> absolutely. I always tell my friends when they've got something in their teeth. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I want someone to tell me. Or if I'm stepping on your foot, of course I want you to tell me. Or if I'm doing a great job, I want you to tell me that so that I can keep doing it. We really just are in too complex of an environment and too rapidly changing an environment to be able to thrive without relying on feedback from one another. Um, and again, people make a big deal out of it. I think what's important is to step back and, and frame it as learning, as support for one another. The other piece of it is the skills. And that's a lot of what we research, a lot of what we go into in the book. Uh, our focus is on how to take the pain and the fear out of it as much as possible so that it's just an exchange of useful mm. information. So for example, deblurring comes up again and again here, you know, can I share with you what you did in a way that's so clear that a camera would be able to pick it up? So it just mm. was my observation statement. You know, I, I noticed that throughout today's conversation, you asked me several questions. The impact of that is also really important. So I noticed that and I mentioned it because I felt like I was able to have insights throughout this conversation that I never even had before. True real-time feedback for you, by the way, <laughs> mm. um, because of the question, the quality of the questions that you ask. So that combination of the data and the impact is so critical and there are other components to it, but that's the essence of it, that um, if people just kind of get really skilled in those two components, can you share the observation, the data of what the individual did, and then the impact that that had on you or on others and that's as simple as it is. Uh, and then, you know, with some practice, it becomes actually quite delightful to have feedback conversations, even about things, you know, more awkward than spinach and teeth. Yeah, I, 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 I hear that because I think, um, again, it comes back to another stoic quality here. Again, you can see, I think to see through this lens um, is, is courage, right? And I think great feedback takes courage, um, takes courage for the person giving it, although some people are very good at giving unwanted feedback, um, but also great courage to be able to take it yeah. and make it something meaningful. So I, I can see why, you know, it can feel really awkward to tell somebody they've got spinach in their mouth. It can be worse if they're like their teeth, if they go the rest of the day without it. So I'm like, no, I'm going to tell you. Right. Um, but it, it, in, in so many ways in life, yeah, because I think it's the misunderstanding why the feedback is being given. And um, I'm, so like you said, assigning a reason or a type of meaning and the impact that it has is yeah. a really important component. And yeah. um I mean, I'm certainly thinking that I'm teaching my kids negotiation and um, I'm always explaining to them that you need to put a because. If you say, you know, yeah. I want I want my friend to stay over. I said, uh, excuse me, Edward, why? But you need to add the because. You know, yeah. Because we can, and, in, and the one he gave me today was, I want my friend to stay over because we can talk strategy for football. The what? match that we have, we're, the strategy so that we have, the game, the game that we're playing on Saturday because I'm the coach. So I was like, yes, son. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Oh, He's only eight. You're you're, you're I know, I know. I'm creating a monster. A Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Love there we go. I love that. And, you know, I think, again, it comes back to also when receiving feedback well, it comes back to recognizing that, you know, as adults, we're sort of taught that the time for mistakes is over. You know, when you're a kid, you can fall down on your face a bunch and that's okay. As an adult, you're supposed to do everything correctly. If we bring that kind of mindset into the workplace these days, it's incredibly dangerous because mm. it means that we see mistakes as, you know, these these errors uh, on our report cards versus, oh, that's a learning opportunity. That's a learning opportunity. That's a learning opportunity. So if we continue to see ourselves as capable of learning, then that critical feedback is exciting because it's mm. just an opportunity to get even better. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to say to folks, and I know we're running up against time here, but I, I'm going to say to folks who, if they do get a chance to listen to the, read, listen to or read the book, that one of the things that really struck me and sits with me still is about the idea of autonomy, which really links to this. Which was that said in the book that people can have 
a sense of not having enough autonomy as like ability to make impact. But interestingly, they can have too much yeah. autonomy as well. And I must say, I, at times I might have been guilty of this with my team is to say to people, you figure it out, you go for it. You know, I want you to do it. But that actually can create inherent stresses. And But in it, I've always thought that there needs, the individual needs to have the courage to step forward and say, I don't know, I don't understand what I need to do next. Mm. Um, and that then becomes a component of having autonomy over the outcomes that you want in your life. So that sort of pushes back the responsibility to them. But I could recognize it. It was made me reshape some of my thinking there. So I, I say thank you to you for oh, that. I appreciate but that. But, but also just generally for something that, that I think connects to all of this, right? That if you want to be a great leader, you have to take some responsibility, call it autonomy responsibility, to, to take the action to get better and to be interested in it, um, to be, get better at feedback, to get better at creating meaning and understanding what people think around you and understanding psychology and all of those yeah. things. So, yeah, I am... I, um, yeah, interesting. Point. I was going to say, coming back to feedback and autonomy, you don't you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it in a vacuum. You can ask your team, give them the autonomy to say, "Hey, do you want more support or less support? Do you want to focus on your development, or do you want to focus on you know the the project that you have going on right now?" So that that's something that we start off with right away in the book. So spoiler alert is we talk a lot <laughs> about question skills and what we call cue stepping, stepping toward questions as your default. Mm. Um, so you can you don't have to get perfect on your own, you can use your team to give you that feedback and to share with you the kind of support that they need. Because ultimately, again, their success is your success. So it's important to calibrate and and seek that kind of support from the people that you are trying to support. Wonderful. Well, I want to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Um, and, um, you know, you and Leanne writing this book together, because it was a very practical and useful guide. And I will certainly be happy to recommend it to, to the listeners and out there go and grab it and it's coming out on audiobook soon um but it's available um where you can buy books at the moment um brilliant so at this point um i always like to ask my guests the somewhat cliched but predictable question about sort of the best books that you've read the top three books that you recommend or anything that's a book that's a favorite one for you it can be anything goodness but but do you have any book that you would recommend that you that you either helped you shape where you are, get to, or that, that you recommend at the moment? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll go in a slight uh, kind of strange assortment. The first book is a children's book that comes to mind, and it's called The oh, Phantom wow. Tollbooth. And I read it and reread it regularly, even though usually that's against my life rules because I feel like life is short and I can't spend it rewatching or rereading. But this book is totally worth it because you know, I've read it since I was a kid and every time I read it again, I learn something new. Um, and the reason I recommend that book is that it's really, it is um, a wonderful training experience in learning to see the world through many different lenses. Phantom uh, mm -hmm. that's all I'll say. And then um, I would also recommend the book Immunity to Change. Are you familiar with that one? Lisa was one of the guests on the show as oh well. My gosh. So yeah, she, oh wait, did you yeah. tell me that? I wonder if that that like you primed me for it, but yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so a wonderful book that has really shaped. Very very different from the Phantom Tollbooth. Very yeah. <laughs> really very, shaped yes. the way that I look at the world, um, because it really helps you understand when you and others are both striving for change and standing in the way of change. Um, so if you want to create any kind of organizational change, personal change, that is a fantastic, fantastic book. And then, oh my gosh, how do I pick three? I feel like I'm, I'm cheating on all the others. Um, <laughs> I would recommend like anything probably by the, the Heath brothers, um, Dan and Chip Heath. Um, maybe my favorite is Switch, um, uh, their book. Oh, also on leading change. Oh, I've already talked about change. Okay. Can I, can I sneak in a fourth? <laughs> You can absolutely. So we got, we got switched okay. by the Heath brothers. And okay. uh, I, love, I love this when you got four. <laughs> since, since I, since I talked before, of, oh gosh, no, no, I want to do more. Uh, okay. Um, fine. I'll, I'll go with um, the checklist manifesto. Since we talked a little bit about checklists, uh, I do want to give credit to, um, you know, that, that book um, really shaping my thinking on the impact of checklists and, 
the the kind of teaser for that book is that checklists save more lives than medicine. <laughs> and so can you if you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> My wife loves a checklist, so she's I'm I'm going to put that in the list 100% right. for Christmas. That's on there definitely. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful so that was four then so thank you very much for those sorry I, I, i'm no, not good at following rules not at all you never have to apologize about recommending <laughs> good books on this show i am a huge fan of great books and always you know admire the authors who go into creating them so um again i just want to say a heartfelt thank you for um for coming on with us today and sharing your your work and the great work that you're doing and um one of the guests they can they can find you on your great podcast, which is Talk Psych to Me. Um, and if anybody else, where else are you prevalent on social yeah, media well, world? You know, if you're interested in in the book, if you're interested in training for your organization, or we have so many free resources. We also have a podcast through Life Labs Learning. We have a blog with lots of really great writing. So simplest is just to go to lifelabslearning.com and you can find us on all sorts of social things from there. But I will just say central hub, lifelabslearning.com. Wonderful. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you. Really my pleasure. Thank you. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.